Shalom, this is Rabbi Tama Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue, bringing you the Parashah number one uh, in our new cycle of reading God's Torah. This is Parashah number one, Bereshit in the beginning, Genesis 1, 1 through 6, 8, with the Haftarah and Brit Kaddishah commentaries as well. The book of Genesis contains the history of the universe, mankind, and God's plan of salvation for all true believers defined in God's Torah in John chapter 14, Romans chapters 1 through 3, and the sevenfold witness found in the book of Revelation. Messages from the book of Genesis may be based on the generalities of the book, biblical characters, and or events, each message having a potential to span weeks or months. Because we're living in the end times and the adversary has accelerated his campaign to deceive true believers using a progressive socialistic democracy, that is evolving within America and other nations, today's message focuses on the adversary slash Satan or Satan, uh, Lucifer, evil, and the Nephilim. A future message, which will include extensive detail on the subject, will be presented in a future lesson and will also be posted on our website at rabdavis.org. So let's start with a biblical narrative regarding the fallen angels and their progeny. Quote, in time, when men began to multiply on earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Adonai said, My spirit will not live in human beings forever, for they too are flesh, therefore their lifespan is to be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the ancient heroes of renown, unquote. We're told that the Nephilim were on the earth before the flood and afterwards. The glaring question is, how did the Nephilim arrive after the flood when everything and every, everyone else was destroyed? There was a recent movie about Noah in which evil in the form of a human hung on the side of the ark and made it through the flood. There are some people who subscribe to this opinion, even though it would make the Bible inaccurate and God a liar, since he's the one who inspired the authors to write the Bible in its original form. So we must look for another possible explanation. Using the process of hermeneutics, whereby we let Bible prove itself through multiple scriptures throughout time, we first go to Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, and Ezekiel 28, 12 through 18. These passages refer specifically to the kings of Babylon and Tyre, but I submit they also refer to the spiritual power behind those kings, Satan. These passages provide an explanation of why Satan slash Lucifer fell, but they do not give us a clue as to when this fall occurred. Yeshua witnessed Satan's fall mentioned in Luke 10, 18, quote, I saw Satan created before the earth, Job 38, 4 through 7. This fall also occurred before Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden, Genesis 3, 1 through 14. So we may conclude that the fall of Satan and a third of the angels, Revelation 12, 4, must have occurred after the angels were created as Lucifer, Satan, was the quintessential angel before pride set in and he decided he would usurp God's throne. According to Proverbs 16, 18, quote, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, unquote. Interestingly, Satan has already fallen. His destruction to follow when he's finally cast into the lake of fire and brimstone 
along with the beast and the false prophet. It's in Revelation 20.10. Although Satan fell from God's grace and was cast down to earth, he still had access to heaven. This is found in Job 1, 6 through 7. At that time, Satan moved freely between heaven and earth, speaking to God directly. It's debatable as to whether the relationship continues for now. Some maintain that Satan's access to heaven ended with the crucifixion of Yeshua, and others maintain Satan's access to heaven will end with the war in heaven. Revelation 12, 7-12 with Satan's failure to overtake the throne of God, he concentrated his efforts on taking as many souls to a final destiny of total destruction, concentrating on humans. How much more efficient can the spread of the cancer of pride and other sins be other than deceiving human women with a lust for physically attractive beings and having sex with them? And this is exactly what they did. The appearance of the offspring of such unions resulted in beings that appeared as humans, but were taller and stronger than the average man. They were belligerent and evil. In a paper entitled, quote, Were the Nephilim Genetically Psychopathic, unquote, there is a discussion that besides being intimidating, they were psychopathic. And this infers they have different brain structures, structures that foster the following. Superficial charm combined with the use of mind games. Absence of nervousness and little concern for personal safety. Substance abuse, no regard for the law or custom. Continual deception and cunning, unrelenting threatening behavior. Overly controlling and obsessive, lack of consciousness and refusal to accept any personal responsibility. And rapid mood shifts twisted view of reality and total lack of empathy. This can be found on uh, the website academia.edu slash 196-7404 uh, for further reading and, and study. So those above characteristics typify that Satan and the demons are like including the Nephilim offspring. Understanding that the Nephilim are the offspring of demons and human women we must ask whether it's possible for their DNA was passed on through one of Noah's daughters-in-law. A correct understanding of the narrative concerning the conquest of Canaan under Moshe and Yehoshua, in which the report from the spies described very large and belligerent men, must be explored for the possibility of genetic perpetuation of the Nephilim through one of the surviving wives, specifically Ham's wife. The rationale for this supposition will be included in the teaching on this subject, uh, that I will post uh, in the near future, again, to rabdavis.org. Other possibilities include the following. Somehow the sons of God returned after the flood and recreated a race of Nephilim. However, there is no mention of this happening, and the sons of God from Genesis 6 were imprisoned for their action. The flood was local, and some of the Nephilim survived. Well, there's a growing body of archaeological findings and research which is now gravitating toward a global event, making this possibility less likely. In fact, the Bible says that the whole earth was covered. An additional point in the context of the Ten Spies report to Moshe and Caleb is that the word used for false, for false is also translated as evil, evil report, bad account, evil words, bad news, bad report or ill report or discouraging report. 
These translations present the possibility that what the spies saw were in fact Nephilim and that they weren't exaggerating. This speaks to the statement in Genesis 6 that the Nephilim indeed were and are present after the flood. There is also an opinion of some people that angels cannot interbreed with humans based on a misinterpretation of Matthew 22. However, the Bible is replete with narratives that speak of angels who have been manifest as animals and humans interacting with humans on a tangible and tactile level. The Nephilim offspring are human hybrids, that is, fallen angels with souls. For those who believe this is impossible, I refer them to the manifestation of Yeshua who became a tangible being for a time so that humans could relate to him and so he could teach his Torah, his instructions, by example. Angels can assume different forms. Without going into more detail and theories addressing the subject of the Nephilim and their infiltration in humanity, I submit that the question about how the Nephilim were able to continue the destructive evil mission to gain the souls of those who choose to be seduced by their tactics after the flood has been answered. This brief introduction to the subject of Nephilim will hopefully stimulate further exploration and research on the part of the reader. After all, one of the major tenets of war is to know your enemy. Our Haftarah is out of Isaiah 42, and there are two connections between this Padashah and the Haftarah. First, the Padashah begins with the creation of the world. In the Haftarah, the prophet Isaiah reminds Israel that God is the creator of the world, sustaining the creation each day. Creation is not something that was done once, any more than salvation is a once done, always done event. It's a continuing miracle. We're to be reminded of this with each Shabbat service. Second, the parasha, man is the only creature given the power to choose between right and wrong. In the Haftarah, Yeshayahu tells the people that God created Israel to be a light for the nations. We're to set the example. We are not better than anyone else. My God, we are, we are the minority in all cases. We're always hated. We're always being blamed for whatever happens. But we are to be a light to the nations to show that we can overcome with God's power. It's our responsibility to show the nations what's right so that they too can come closer to God. How do we do this? Well, the Hasidim have a great definition of what we're supposed to be if we're to identify ourselves with Israel and as servants of Yahweh Yeshua. We're to be constantly moving from what we are to what we can be and from what we've made of ourselves to a deeper truth of what we really are. We are to be engaged in perpetual quest to improve ourselves and God's world, to transcend the world, transcend ourselves, we're to be engaged in a lifelong conversation with God to present our questions, our needs, our grievances and aspirations to him and then listen carefully for his responses. We don't do that well. We're to do good because God commands it and because we love him. God told Abraham to quote, Lech lecha, me arsecha, me moladethka, umebet avicha, El Ha'aretz Asher Areka, which is translated in English, Go you from your land, from your birthplace, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. In Kabbalistic interpretation, the phrase means, Go to your innermost self. Move away from your will, from your feelings, 
and from your intellect to the desire that I will reveal to you. To be a light unto the nations, we must learn to imitate the light, capital L, of the word. That's Yahweh Yeshua, Yeshua. Make sense? Kadashah is out of Revelation 21, 1 through 5. The first passage describes the sinless condition of Eden that will be restored after thousands of years of groaning with the pains of childbirth to finally set free from its bondage to decay, to enjoy the freedom accompanying the glory that God's children will have. Romans 8, 19 through 23. It describes the restoration spoken of in Acts 3.21 in which Yeshua, quote, has to remain in heaven until the time comes for restoring everything, as God said long ago when he spoke through the holy prophets, unquote. It's also the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 65 and 6. The Bible depicts creation as a constant struggle. For example, light conquers darkness. The sea is allied with darkness. It has to be contained and limited. And this is done on the second day of creation. The sea is active in bringing destruction and death through the flood of Noah, but the sea is under God's control, as seen in the episode of the Red Sea. And Yeshua is calming the sea. Psalm 148 attests to the subservience of the sea to his command. The sea will never be used again as a means of universal destruction. Our internal battle between our Esau and Jacob is also a constant struggle. However, we can emerge victorious at the finish line through trusting in the faithfulness of Yeshua's sacrifice and following the commands of God. The holy city of Jerusalem, mentioned in verse 2, is considered feminine. Could this resemble the verse in our parashah? that describes a man leaving his father and mother in the context of Yeshua leaving his father and quote-unquote mother and cleaving to his wife, and the wife will be Israel in the future. The bride will be Yeshua's people who have repented. This is food for thought. Jerusalem is seen coming down out of heaven from God as a bride is brought to the altar by her father, prepared like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, the bride is Israel, all true believers defined by Yeshua in the book of Revelation and not the church. Verse 4 speaks of the restoration of the relationship between Israel, again, all true believers, not geographical Israel, and God, as was the relationship between Adam, Eve, and God in the beginning. God, Yahweh Yeshua, will dwell with his own, never to be separated again. Shalom. If you have any questions, comments, anything you would like to post uh, for my review, just go to our website at rabdavis.org and click the link, Ask the Rabbi. Uh, post your information and I will be happy to get back with you uh, as soon as I receive it. Amen.